Hi, everybody. Welcome to the virtual LSE. I am Grace Lorden, an Associate Professor in Behavioural Science and the Founding Director of the Inclusion Initiative LSE's newest research centre. Um, I'm also an expert advisor to the UK government and the author of Think Big. And I'm really pleased to be here for the second instalment of a decade of behavioural science with Professor Paul Jolin, who is the director of the EMSC in behavioural science here at the LSC. He is also the author of two books in behavioural science, Happiness by Design and Happily Ever After. And he is most recently the creator and presenter of the Duck Rabbit podcast, which I had the pleasure of listening to in getting ready for the webinar today. And it's really, really good, Paul. Congratulations. Um, in the last session, we covered a lot of ground looking backwards. So we looked backwards through a decade of behavioral science and we talked about things like adaptation, relativity, our favorite biases, the role of narratives. And in this session, I'm going to ask Paul to kind of kick off to anchor us on the type of themes that he might want to discuss today, um, reminding you that the floor is open. So ask questions as soon as they come into your mind and we will get to those relatively quickly. So Paul, over to you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, nice to see you again, Grace. And uh, so wonderful to see so many people join especially when in the UK, at least, they can now sit inside pubs and get drunk. So it's uh, it's really, really nice to see everybody here. Um, so I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think the theme that we, we thought we'd discuss today was kind of looking forwards to the next decade. Um, and sort of just a bit of a stream of consciousness on that, I suppose, to begin with. And, and then we can maybe get into a deeper discussion. I think actually just on that point about the pubs being open is that I think for the next decade, I hope, hope, I hope that we can look forward to uh, a bit more fun and humour and hedonism, um, uh, not just in our social lives, but maybe in academic work too. Because I think one thing that we touched on last time is the is the role of humour in work, and particularly in um, ways it ways in which it can break down the polarisation of issues as well. I think that's um, one one very very important role of humour. So for the next ten years, let's go out and have a lot of fun. I think it would be a nice place to um, start and finish. Maybe we'll come back to that at the end. Um, I was thinking about what what the next decade of behavioural science might look like in relation to the disciplines that it would encompass. And I think we've seen the last decade has been a sort of you know much a lot about economics and psychology, right? The interface of economics and psychology for these last couple of decades. And maybe um, we'll, we, we, well, we almost certainly will see, and we are seeing, um, so there's nothing new to say this, I suppose, the incorporation of different disciplines into behavioural science from, I suppose, from a, from a harder science end, but also from a softer social science end. And I think that's, that's I think that for me, is, I thought was going to be quite an interesting development is, you know, the sort of, um, yeah, you know, sort of genes and, uh, physiology and medicine, you know, uh, on the one hand, if you like, and then sort of anthropology and sociology uh, um, on the uh, on the on the on the other, and how you might bring those together. And I was thinking about my own training in economics to begin with, and we, as you'll know, too, Grace, and many others may be listening, will you get trained in this distinction between positive and normative economics? The idea that there are statements about how the world is which are positive statements of fact, and then how the world ought to be, which are normative statements of value. And I think what's going to be really interesting is the role, or at least I'm just starting to think about this, about the role that narratives and stories will play in our understanding of the relationship between facts and values. Because one of the things that really struck me, I, I was really, it was an absolute pleasure to make those podcasts 
um, and uh, again to encourage people to listen to them if they haven't done. Um, but one of the one of the the mind blowing things for me in there was reading a book by uh, Edwin Gale, who's at Bristol, who wrote this book called The Species That Changed Itself. And it's about how obesity is really like, you know, basically we've adapted the human phenotype to become obese, right? That's our environment. And, and of, of course, the human phenotype adapts the environment and it adapts to its environment, right? So just imagine the recasting of the story of obesity away. And all, all of the facts about obesity will remain unchanged, right? All of the science remains unchanged. But the narratives that we construct about our interpretation of the science becomes completely different, doesn't it? It ceases to be a disease. It ceases to be a problem. It ceases to be something that we need to cure, but rather then become something that we adapt to and live with. Now, even on one side, whether that's right or wrong, the fact that that can recast that story actually makes a huge amount of sense to me personally. The recasting of that narrative just really just completely changes the way in which we interpret the science. And I think, I think that, that for me is going to be a really critical intersection um, as we move forward over the next decade, I've got tons of other stuff, Grace, that I could spew out to you. Um, but I think I'll stop there. I think that just seems to be a kind of nice opening point, that sort of harder and softer science and how we bring together these statements of, of fact on the one hand with value judgments on the other. Because we've, you know, again, just um, sort of summarise, I suppose, we've, we've, we've seen a lot of that play out and that intersection play out a lot over the last 15 months. And so it'd be really interesting to see how behavioural science responds to that in some sense as we move forward it's interesting because when you were when you were talking about the kind of opening of behavioral science to take on these discipline perspectives one thing that i was trying to struggle in my mind to think about a research team that has more than two disciplines so where we have people who are working across at least three disciplines and it doesn't really happen and i think within behavioral science if we mm -hmm. look at the teams that are working together they're actually quite alike and I think one of the other um, things that you've spoken a lot about and have asked people to learn from COVID-19 is in decision making, more than academic writing, the need to have people with diverse characteristics involved in decision making. So can you say more about your ideas there and maybe also talk about your perception as to how we can bring together academic teams that are a bit more diverse? <laughs> Yes, that's a good question. So thank you for allowing me to elaborate a little bit on that. Let me just finish that. Let me just sort of pick up on this obesity point, because, you know, there'll be evidence on how um, obviously there's a huge genetic component to that. But you but you'll sometimes find identical twins, hmm. one of whom is fat and the other one who whom is thin. Genetically, there'd be no explanation uh, for that it's in the environment one of them you have to go in and, and and actually understand people's life histories and their life stories to understand that one of them might have experienced some kind of trauma at some point that the other one didn't and so you see how you need then you really do need these very diverse perspectives in order to understand even a statement of science and fact um let alone a statement of value so i think so that just does 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 reinforce i think the requirement that we bring together these different disciplines but you're absolutely right it's difficult because we all have different incentives particularly in academia where we typically work in silos and we have incentives to publish in particular journals and so why would i then collaborate with someone who works in a different area who might want to publish in a different um, journal and, and that is of course a challenge breaking down silos is actually just a challenge across everywhere you know across public and private sectors across any organization and institution so i don't think it's unique to academia um 
What I've become alert to in, in the diversity of perspectives over the last year is I'd say more alert to um, is because we've always I've always been alert to the to the diversity of opinion and belief and behavior and experience. Um, and I know, you know, this is obviously something that you, that, that, will put, that, you know, feeds directly into some of your your own work in the inclusion initiative is, you know, it's important that we have diversity of characteristics. It's just as important that we have diversity of opinion, perspective and belief. And and some of those perspectives over this last year, I've kind of realized how how narrow they can be. Like, I hadn't thought about in the past, I don't think really about age as such an important determinant of diversity. You know, we've had decision makers over the last year or more who have been you know, pretty much my age, basically, plus or minus five years, you know, early 50s, whatever. Making decisions around the world is pretty much a universal or either advising on them or actually making of them. Um, they also have they also have a particular they're also a particular type of person as well, aren't they? They're the people who are working in the public sector by and large. So they're probably more risk averse and cautious. They're all been able to work at home on Zoom largely on full salaries. They might also have a particular type of personality that follows from that. And also, you know, again, sort of bringing in the softer science into the harder science. You know, you may be some of listeners and viewers will be familiar with the attachment theories that have you know been sort of developed over the many decades. And some of that work was, you know, kind of that early work was a little flaky, perhaps, but it's been developed more rigorously and fully and without getting into the details of it. You know, there is some there is some signal that comes through the noise of different attachment styles when people are, you know, when, when we're uh, forming those early life 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 experiences. And this is really interesting. I'm just sort of putting this out there because we're, we're we're having a sort of general conversation and I, and I want to try and speculate about uh, about a few things. Maybe that the decisions have been made by more avoidant attachment styles um over the past year or more um that'd be a very interesting research question wouldn't it because if you're because you know those the sort of costs and benefits of different actions in response to any policy challenge covid included you know will be shaped by your own experiences and your own perspectives and you know if 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 there's a predisposition of people for whom direct social contact is less important then you might expect the policy responses to place less emphasis on direct social contact. Um, you can tell the literature says you can actually listen to the to the tone of someone's voice. Um, if, if they have a more monotonic voice, there's some evidence that they're more of an avoidant style. Um, so again, that would be really, I'd just be really interested. I'm just sort of, you know, I don't, I have no idea how this would actually play out, but it's a really, you know, these, 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 are, these are the sorts of questions that I've been pondering more and more over these last, after this last little while is that, you know, it's a very simple word to say diversity. It's a much more complicated challenge to think about what characteristics and attributes are really fundamentally important to ensure diversity within a particular decision-making context. I, I think it was interesting to me when you, when you started, you said, you know, I, I believe in, you know, having diverse uh, characteristics around the board, but also having kind of diverse beliefs, perspectives, life experiences. And I think, you know, for people who work in inclusion, we only look to the characteristics to get us to the beliefs, to the life experiences. So in the end, I guess a woman who goes through life is going to have, you know, different life experiences as compared to a man. But I guess what I kind of want to push you on are your ideas on how we could have brought those experiences together. So I take your point absolutely that we had too much of the similar types of people who were around very important 
tables making decisions recently. But then how do we actually get people to work together and recognize that if somebody is pushing back on your idea, it might actually be a good thing for you rather than kind of a slight of your ego? Because for me, ego is something that's really interesting in behavioral science. It is. And, you know, making the podcast like even I, you know, even I was alert to the fact, say, say even I, <laughs> like I said, you know, I, I, I was alert to the fact that, you know, when I was talking to people on the podcast or coming to my conclusions at the end, I don't want to, you know, I'm not sort of going out of my way to upset people. I never would. I, I would I would never do. I've never deliberately, you know, got tried to upset anybody. Um, and so you do feel a bit uncomfortable about doing that if you want to create a provocation, which I think sometimes is what academics need to do. We need environments where we can provoke. I think that's part of our responsibilities almost um but at the same time being kind of you know we all say that we like to hear different opinions but actually we don't actually fundamentally we don't we want people we much rather surround ourselves with people that nod rather than shake their heads it's actually discomforting to to to, to be around people that disagree so so kind of i suppose the first step i mean i was just thinking that like the first step to behavior change in any environment is acceptance i guess i mean that's like if you look at any of the therapies that's pretty much what they all start with so maybe the first therapy for us all would be acceptance, actually acceptance of the fact that we don't like people that disagree really, even though we say we do. And sort of maybe if we can just accept that, that might liberate us and free us a bit more to be able to have, you know, the kinds of conversations, more difficult conversations with people that might, that might disagree with us. Um, you know, I, I kind of have really become really established in my view now that, you know, I, I, I feel, I feel passionately about many things, but I feel, and I feel passionately about your right to disagree with me about them. Um, and I think that just kind of embedding both of those things in our discourse, I think, will be um, incredibly helpful. I agree with you that it's not that it's not straightforward. Um, I think it becomes it becomes important, though, on the frames of reference for bodies and organizations and institutions to ensure that that diversity gets reflected. Um, so, for example, you know, when we have the public inquiry into the response to COVID, I think it's fundamentally important that we have people on that panel that have diverse perspectives and will ask more wide ranging questions. Like for example, when we decided to close the schools, where in the process were the Department for Education and other educationalists um, putting the case for why some of those interventions might cause long-term harm and what we might do to mitigate them even if we were still to close the schools. That's the kind of thing where we can embed it into the processes, I think. Do you believe in adaptation, Paul, in, in particular roles? So when I listened um, to your podcast recently, I know you spoke about, um, you know, coming from a working class background and some of your hobbies aren't necessarily aligned with, with some people who come from a middle class background, which was, re which was quite interesting. And it got me thinking about people who adapt in particular work settings. So mm -hmm. I might argue, for example, that you couldn't represent the working class background mm -hmm. because you have spent too long working in a kind of a middle class professional job so how would you feel if i said that to you <laughs> well that's a really i'm good glad point. we're virtual <laughs> you know i'd like to disagree with you um I, I, I think um you know it's a tricky one because it was always that classic racist comment that people often make is some of my best friends are black and i kind of actually think that that's like some of my best friends are working class it's actually quite that's actually quite a telling comment, I think, because often what will happen when working class people become successful by normal metrics of status and occupation is that they'll distance themselves uh, psychologically and geographically from the people that they that they once were. So I think by then, then by all accounts, you're right. Then what is their 
that's left of their working classness in, in any sense. And I think one of the things that would, maybe my answer to push back on that for you would be some of my best friends are working class. Is that I still is that is that, is that actually most of my friends are um, people that haven't been to university, people that don't have you know careers in the traditional sense that we might talk about them in LSE and elsewhere that are you know you know <laughs> normal people in whatever term you want to say that. Um, and so that sort of retention of those experiences still still hold for me. And I think I think that's important, again, playing into the previous part of our discussion, which is that, you know, being directly alert to some of the impact that the school closures would have on the friends of our kids in the schools that they're at. You know, that that that's like knowing that directly. So I think whilst you're absolutely right, I mean, I, I fucking live in Hove, for God's sake. You know, I work at the LSE. I mean, it's like there's not very much left that I could claim to be working class, but there is in 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 much of how I use my spare time um, and and in the sorts of people that I spend my time with. I wanted to kind of continue on because I, I, I like the idea of bringing diverse voices around the table. And one of the things that you spoke about a lot in your podcast was the idea that we should agree to disagree. And I want to try to get you to change your mind about that expression. Um, so when you talk about individuals on the podcast and you talk about them getting married and, and choosing different lifestyles. You have yeah. actually listened to the podcast. This is I've listened. I studied this webinar. I feel like I'm uncomfortable now. You're going to know more about what I speak <laughs> than I do. Um, but when, you know, when I listen to it, uh, so, so for me, that's individual choice. So what, whatever anyone wants to do that doesn't affect me, doesn't bother me. But yeah, I yeah. think if we bring the idea of agree to disagree into groups, Mm. It ends up with this stalemate where we never see the other person's perspective. And I think, I, you know, I don't, maybe there's three words that can go after that that will capture the idea that even if I disagree with you, I should be able to see where your perspective is coming from that might bring us close together. Because I know you're interested in polarization. And for me, the expression agree to disagree is what causes polarization. Mm. You have two camps and they don't talk to each other and find a common understanding. Yes, it's a very good question. So you know that I always will say context matters as my get out of jail free card for any question that's difficult. So um, I'll say that now. But it, it is true that context matters. I mean, it's, it's just because I say it doesn't mean it doesn't make it any less true. I say it a lot on the podcast. I, I realise when you listen back, it's funny when you when I listen back to them and I just heard all five. And you realise when you're making one at a time that I say it quite a lot <laughs> more than I expect to say it. That's <laughs> the two words that I say all the time, but. So, of course, the context will matter and it will matter the environment. It will matter what you're trying to do with the disagreement. So, you know, agree to disagree is actually quite useful in environments where we might have a political system where we can represent our views and then agree that we will accept the result of the election. Right. Mm -hmm. So then we can all be then we can go around disagreeing and there's some aggregation process that will reach some agreement based upon the aggregation of individuals across society. Um, in boardrooms, which I guess is kind of where maybe maybe where much of your own interests lie, um, I agree with you that that's not, you need to, I, there, there probably needs to be a greater appreciation of the perspective that someone else will adopt when they're in that boardroom because the boardroom needs to make a decision. So I think, I think, I think you're right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that as a generalizable comment for every single, uh, for every single context. And speaking to the former, we have something similar in high stakes decisions. Um, 
where we say disagree, but, pers- but carry on. So you, you get to move forward, but you audit who actually disagreed. And I think that audit is quite powerful because you can look back and say, were we always ignoring right. someone like Paul or were we always ignoring someone like Grace? Right. Um, but maybe you'll change your mind. We will wait, we'll wait for part three of, of the decade of April science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Want- but, our, but, but our ability to change. So I like, so I think some of the things that it, it, it reminds me of, I remember like when I first started teaching at the LSE and I'd sort of, you know, put very boldly, you know, kind of, you don't really choose very much of what you do and, you know, context drive everything. You don't really have very much of a brain that decides rationally what you do and how uncomfortable students are with that idea. Actually, for me, it's liberating, right? It's a sort of freeing thing. I suppose the same thing comes with other things like being inconsistent, changing your mind, being a hypocrite, all these things that, you know, all these things, all these things that we, because I'm alert to those things all the time, you know, like when, when you break the rules, that's fine. You see someone else breaking the rules and they're a terrible, awful person. It's like you, we do have these, these things coexist in our brains all the time. It's like, chill out a little bit, get over ourselves a little bit. And we can probably make some progress if we just free ourselves of these stories about the kinds of people that we'd like to be ideally. Changing your mind is good. So we won't put it on the list with hypocrisy, which isn't necessarily, <laughs> if I'm labeling things good and bad, changing your mind is definitely good. I'm going to move on to, a, I think this is, this is going to be your toughest question. Well, at least it would be if I was asked it. Um, oh, so you're a proponent of the calculation of welfare con- uh, consequences. And you talk about the idea that any big decision that's made, and I think you're usually thinking, you usually have government in your mind, but do correct me if, if, if I'm wrong. So a policy change is made and it shouldn't be just on the one outcome. It should be kind of ripples of the pond. Right. Um, and I notice that when you speak about this, you rely a lot on narrative. So specific to COVID, you talk about the education systems and children who, do, who don't have particularly good homes um, not being able to go to school. And that's quite emotional. Um, mm-hmm. So you really rely on kind of a, 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 on the storytelling. And then a lot of your own work looks backwards. So it will look at policies that happened last year, the year before, and it will quantify these ripples. So when you say that, I think a question is, how can we actually do this? looking forward because I haven't seen too much prediction work in this area where we have a particular policy change and we're now going to predict the ripples to figure out whether or not we should pull that policy lever yes good so okay let me deal with two, let me deal with at least two parts of that one is the storytelling part and then the other is the projection prospection part so you're absolutely right about the storytelling part we know that we listen to, that we know this is what human beings do. We listen to narratives, we listen to stories and emotions and, you know, data and evidence are, are much more secondary considerations, at least as attentional phenomena. So, so when academics say things like, no one listens to me, policymakers should pay more attention to me. Well, speak and present your research search in a way that makes it more likely that they will listen. So the use of stories and the use of narratives is fundamentally important. Um, so that's a good thing. So I'm glad you've I'm glad you've noticed that that's what I do because uh, because it's important. I think that we do that to get people to then pay attention to the evidence that will follow up the stories. Um, I mean, economic appraisal. So on the prospection point, I mean, the the point of economic appraisal is that it's appraising prospective uses of resources. So I use an analogy again. It's nice. I think as a story of dropping you know the pebble of intervention into the pond. Uh, we've dropped a very heavy stone of intervention into the pond over this last year um, and you get a splash and policymakers will typically capture the splash. And you're, and you're right. I'm thinking typically about public policy, although it could apply to corporate policy, too. 
And then there's all these ripple effects downstream, some of which could turn into tidal waves that are largely ignored. Mm -hmm. um, and But you should be doing that. We can do it once the pebble's been put in the pond, and once you've got the splashes and the ripple effects. But you're absolutely right. We ought to be doing this before the pebble ever gets anywhere near the water. We should be doing it well, there's lots of different pebbles that we might potentially drop into the pond of intervention. Um, and actually, you know, it's interesting that the Green Book, the Treasury Green Book, for those that um, won't be familiar with this, is a sort of economic appraisal guidance Bible um, for how you do appraisal in the public sector. It's kind of there and it sort of ought to be used um, for the appraisal of any of any interventions. Um, it's It's not. I mean, there's probably maybe 152 or whatever it is, good reasons, why not? It's 152 pages long. Um, it's probably not, you know, again, sort of <laughs> making things easy. You know, the simple behavioural science lesson that we have, you know this. One page. Simple. <laughs> yeah, no, make it, make it uh, simple. There should be very, I know that's all the annexes and everything else in there, but there should be some very simple guidance that would be, you know, much more salient to policymakers perhaps. But maybe, um, you know, that we, not maybe, but we, but we should, we ought to be, um, doing these um, things more routinely, and it and it's interesting that there are there are politicians and policymakers and people like Steve Baker in the Tory Party who are who have been quite vocal and outspoken about the use of appraisal techniques to assess the costs and benefits of intervention. So hopefully, hopefully we can start to make some progress on getting those in place before we drop the pebble in. And not only afterwards. Do you see kind of behavioural science, and, and perhaps this might be kind of broad for academia, on the most part, we're kind of armchair warriors in a sense, that we look backwards at evidence once something has actually been done, and we say, this is what you should have done. And then looking forwards, we're quite bad for producing that predictive work. And would you want to see more of the predictive work, independent of government? So I don't need to be working for government yeah. to do predictive work. Do, would you like that to be a trend for the next 10 years? It'd be hard to say no to that. I think one of the one of the issues is that we don't like we don't remember very well. So like even now, so when we're trying to make predictions about what's going to happen over the next decade, right? Like we know from good experience and most things is that is that things change much much less than we predict they will. Mm -hmm. Right? There was all of this sudden like a year ago or six months ago, there's all these things like this. It's going to be these enormous like upheavals and changes to work practices and everything else. And to some degree, there will be some. But you can bet your life that, well, maybe not your life, your house maybe, um, that most of those things won't be anywhere near as exaggerated mm. as people predict. You know, like people have these moments of epiphany in their own personal lives where they have an experience and they say, that's changed my perspective on everything. And five minutes later, they're worrying about all the trivial things that they worried about before, right? I mean, we know that we all do this, but it's just interesting that our memories don't remember that. And we need ways of institutionally uh, and organisationally remembering. I think that's actually one of the really, really important insights is to have like historic, like real proper institutional memories of things that we might have tried that didn't work, for example. Mm -hmm. So when someone's coming up with a new behavioural science intervention, it all sounds really shiny and exciting. So actually someone can say, actually, we tried that 20 years ago and it didn't work. We don't have, any, we don't have very many incentives in the system to remember well. No, I agree. I agree with that. So I have other questions, but you're being asked questions by the audience. So I'll move to some of those. So Sweeta has asked, 
what do you think of the cancel culture that has taken over the woke liberal section of society? Um, I would I would say listen to episode three of the Duck Rabbit podcast where where we speak directly about freedom of speech. Um, I mean, this is a really interesting, you know, the the point about doing the Duck Rabbit podcast as a as, as a nice metaphor for polarization is that actually for most issues, nothing is nearly almost everything. Nothing is either entirely duck or rabbit. So if you try to sort of adopt, a, you know, for those that adopt an extreme position on that, it's unlikely to be sustainable, particularly in the in the role of context. And context matters so much in relation to freedom of speech. It matters so much. And that's the conclusion that I reach on the on the episode, starting with the the idea that freedom of speech is a, you know, we should be supporting that, but be alert to the context within which it's being expressed. I mean, that's 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 obviously important. And being alert to to the to the preferences and the and uh, and the experiences of those whom we might be offending when we're speaking freely. Um, but I think in academic, you know, thinking about academics, let's come back to that. I mean, I kind of so I I don't really mind so much. I mean, people can have extreme views on 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 most things in in their uh in in advocacy groups or or you know in in sort of certain agencies and stuff i mean one of the things that attracted me to academia was a good argument like i mean like a proper good argument and like, I, like actually listening to the other person's perspective maybe even changing my mind on the balance of evidence um and i'm and i do feel a little bit maybe i'm just sounding old i don't want to sort of get into this position where i'm sort of pontificating on how life used to be as an academic because i don't want to i don't feel like i'm old enough yet grace to have reached that point where i'm going to do that but i think you are carry on great <laughs> <laughs> thanks okay so so i do feel like some of that might be going um to some degree is where you where you kind of have to have a a view on something that's very that's held very dearly and is immutable and I don't think, and, and that worries me when academics are like that. Um, is it the, linking to the question, is it, a, is it a push of the culture? So I've been asked to write op-eds recently and I've turned it down because actually on the issues that I've been asked to write on, I just don't have strong opinions. So I can give kind of the perspectives on both sides. Mm -hmm. The evidence isn't strong um, and the idea of coming down on one side isn't very appealing to me. And, and for me, that's what I see the role as an expert. So if you come to me for a solution, I say, this is the evidence. Now, you're the decision maker. Ask me any questions that you want, but take ownership of the decision. So are we pushing academics to be in the tails um, to respond to a culture? Very good question. Very good question. I mean, I can't help but think of that in relation to the last year. I mean, I, so first of all, I agree with you is that, you know, there is I sort of agree with you largely, but you sort of you get the classic academic response, which is more research is needed, don't you? That's sort of always our way out. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, but I need to decide now. So, okay, well, on the balance of evidence, then maybe this would be what. So, so I do, I do, I agree with you that we, there's a danger that academics go way beyond. Yeah. You know, we, and, and I might have even, been, you know, I sort of alert to that sometimes myself. You start, you start, you start a sentence and you're saying it, it's all very robust and rigorous. And by the time you've ended it, it's kind of you're going <laughs> off into, into how you think the world should be rather than how the world is. So that's a part of the, the natural human condition. So it's important that we rein ourselves in from, doing that um and it is absolutely fundamentally right what you said that advisors advise and ministers decide and that's the or whoever you know someone has to make a judgment that weighs up the balance of evidence i think what we've seen over the last years is almost like a a, 
a conflation of those two things. So, so it's entirely right that SAGE, for example, might advise on the transmission risks of the spread of COVID in schools, for example. They should not advise, they can't advise on the closing of schools. Right? I mean, that's a balanced judgment that the politicians have to make based on the costs and benefits of closing schools, which have many more impacts beyond transmission risks. So I, so I, I worry that they've been that that, 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 that that there has been that conflation. Sort of academic and academia has sort of been drifted into this sort of policy. Make it's not policy making, is it? But you know, sort of advising very heavily on policies for which their own areas or our own own areas of expertise are not well placed to make those kinds of judgments. Yeah, I, I agree with that. We have a question from Alexander. How can you understand why a big behaviour change movement is long or short-lived, like singers' plant-based movements or effective altruism? Um, well, it's interesting. So, after the fact, you can always tell a very good story about anything. Mm. So, after the fact, you can always tell about how the conditions were right for the perfect storm of these effects to all come together to make a big behavior change last long, whether in fact that was what happened to create that process is almost, it almost becomes an Alice in Wonderland story, doesn't it? It becomes like an evolutionary story where there's bound to be lots of good reasons why we've evolved in the way we have, but we never be, be, be able to falsify any arguments that might be made in that regard. And I think a lot, I think we're in danger. We sometimes fall into the danger of that happening. Um, when we're explaining big changes or long-standing ones, one thing is on this on the sort of um, uh, narratives. One thing is that we should always add into that discussion is the narrative of randomness and luck and just who knows. But they're all things that they don't they don't have any agency, so they're really really horrible stories. We don't like randomness as a story. It has no agency. It's a horrible story. We want to attribute it to something. Um, I think maybe there should be, maybe you would even want someone who's like a minister for randomness or something who would, who would kind of, uh, you know, and actually, you know, Danny Kahneman and Cass Sunstein and, and uh, their colleagues got a paper, have, have, have got an amazing book coming out called Noise, um, yeah. which is not about bias. It's just about <laughs> noise. It's, it's actually moving away from bias into noise. And there's, and there's kind of lots of noise. Um, there's lots of noise and there's lots of randomness. So sort of being able to attribute some of those big changes to something that is not attributable in a sense, right? Just it happened to turn out like that would actually go a long way towards explaining and understanding it better. Um, I mean, we do, we do know something though about, you know, th things that make the behaviors more likely to stick into the longer term. Um, and so if you're thinking about, you know, effective altruism, for example, or just generally about altruism, since you raised that in the question, is that you know we there, and there are actually good RCTs on this now. We do have we do have very good causal evidence that if you tap into the essentially the selfishness of selflessness, um, you get more pro-social behaviour. Um, it's longer lasting. Um, that you you know this idea with sort of the narrative that we have to cleanse pro-sociality from any personal benefits is actually harmful. Um, so there are there are things that we know from good evidence that would make it more likely that we would implement things and they would stick. And I'm glad you, you brought up um, Danny Kahneman's new book, Noise, because I think one of the biggest pet peeves I've had about behavioural science for the longest time is the over-focus on p-values and not enough um, fact-checking on the standard errors or even the size of the effects. Mm. 
Um, and I think the question that has been asked really kind of raises the idea of looking at long term, because very often the RCTs just look in the short term, don't they? So you're talking about a week out, a month out, six months out. Um, and it, given this, we're talking about the future. I guess what, one thing that would be wonderful in the future is to look at that longer run, look at that longer run perspective. Yeah, I mean, we can't wait. We can't wait that long, maybe, to understand whether. I mean, we. Um, you're, you're right, of course. Everyone would would be right. The question or two, and you and you two just would be thinking longer, longer term effects. And this is ripples and not just splashes. I mean, that's just not, not just any one moment in time, but over time. Um, but what we might need to develop. What we do need to develop at the same time are better models that can predict those longer run effects. Yeah. Um, I think then we can use them in the shorter term to predict longer run. Um, just the problem, of course, is that the longer run is <laughs> it's pretty uncertain. Well, you can. So I guess you can fit those models in the longer run, provided you have access to data. And I think you've been talking a bit about ethics and behavioral science and kind of access to data. So in theory, you could start a trial today. And if you had access to data, you get next week, one month. So you're not delaying the decision making, which I think is what you're worried about when we, we don't wait forever. But you're still monitoring into the future, which is helpful. But that brings up the um, notion of ethics and behavioral science. So I um, want to kind of think about the, the future of ethics in the space. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I, uh, try, try and put this in a measured, in a in, in as in as measured measured way as I can. So when so when. When Facebook manipulated the emotional states of some of their their Facebook users, I think a few hundred thousand, they were playing about with looking at the effects of the mood manipulations on Facebook. People went crazy about that. It was an un, it was an incredibly unethical practice. It should never be done. Terrible company doing all these things, which I broadly agree with. In fact, agree with. It's one of the things about behavioral science, I think, is that whatever we do, and particularly someone who's working in the sort of nudge arena, is that our nudges are honest in the sense that we're providing people with the kind of right information as far as that's possible. Is it honesty or autonomy? Um, or is it honesty or? Or autonomy. So do you want the people to know they're being nudged, being be told, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in a newspaper, or do you want them to have the autonomy to opt into the nudge, which is which yeah, is yeah. So good quick. Let me come back to. Let me, can I come back? Can I come back to that if I don't answer. If I don't answer it in in in, in as I'm following, try, trying to follow through some logic in my stream of consciousness. <laughs> so uh, so because you can actually get a very quick win from lying people to, to people, actively lying to people. I'm sure you can, but whether that under then that potentially undermines the whole enterprise longer term. So the longer term damage we're talking about long term and short term earlier. The longer term damage would would be more than offset by the short term benefits. So then, when 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 we see when we see the minutes of the Spy B meeting advising on the policy response to COVID last year, which is, I think it's pretty clear that it says that people's own level of personal threat needs to be increased. Um, that I find incredibly. Um, challenging and 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 worrying um and it's entirely legitimate to tell me that i ought to be scared about my behavior because of its effect on other people mm. right but if i'm a younger person it's it's wrong to say that my own risks from covid i mean you know are higher than they than they actually are I, I would be engaging in these behaviors because of the benefits that would come largely to other people and that's entirely right 
So I worry that we've what we've done is that we've created an environment that has made that has actively made. It's not just like we've done it by accident, but that we've actively made people more scared. And that worries me a lot. It worries me about what effects that has not just on behavioral science, because that's like a very internal naval, naval kind of, you know, gazing kind of thing, but actually on society, fundamentally, substantively, what evoking such fear has done and will do into the longer term. Um, and what, what, going back to one of the earlier points that we were talking about, what we need to be damn sure that we're doing is we're, we really are capturing those ripple effects, that we're capturing the hedonic effects of an increase in fear, disproportionate to the risks, and at the same time capturing the behavioural responses that people will engage in when they're scared. Um, so I am, so I am, I, that you can tell, I'm kind of, I, I don't, you know, that, that, that does worry me. <laughs> it makes me fearful. Um, the, the point about the autonomy and the honesty is interesting. So one of the things that drew me towards happiness research away from, like, as you know, I spent my early life as a health economist valuing states of health and illness to inform qualities and, and making health policy. And those quality judgments are based upon people's preferences over, over a certain health state. So would ask me questions about my imagination about how much I'd be affected by having problems walking about or anxiety, depression or whatever. One of the things that I learned through that work and came together was, of course, was when I met Kahneman, um, was the idea that we're actually just not very good at being able to imagine those things. Mm. But actually, what we might more directly rely on is people's experiences, direct experiences of living in those health states. Because we couldn't trust people's judgments about themselves mm. into the future. So, so I think that what we what we want to be doing is, and this is an ethical discussion that we can't resolve today, mm. is to just have a have a discussion about the different accounts of welfare that would be a legitimate basis of which to intervene. So, for example, if you nudged me in a particular direction and I subsequently appreciated that nudge in whatever way that might be measured, would that be a legitimate nudge? Well, it's bound to, the answer to that question is bound to be context matters. But there might be, but there might be some conditions under which I would say, actually, no, the, like, the autonomy is the fundamental thing. There might be other conditions under which I say, well, the welfare effects are fundamentally what matters. Mm. So I don't think there's a simple, I don't think there's a simple answer to that question, but I do think there's a, I do think there's a by and large simple answer question to the, to the use of behavioral science in policy and practice is that not to do things that are actively manipulating, lying or misleading mm. people about particular facts. So when you were so when you were speaking, it, it, it makes a lot of sense why you would be worried about how evoking fear causes behavior change, particularly in a negative in a negative direction. And then when you started speaking, you spoke a bit about the future. So thinking about what those future impacts would be. So maybe you had in your mind that it's going to permanently change behaviors in a negative direction. Um, I also want to ask you about um, life satisfaction and happiness, because I know you're kind of of, of a group that's really pointed out quite rightly that we see these big decreases in these measures over time. Um, what always kind of fascinated me about happiness economists is they show adaptation, right? So somebody who's making an argument thinking about the future impacts on life satisfaction could quite legitimately say 
we should assume that they're zero because people will always adapt to things like COVID. Um, and I, you know, the exception, I guess, is unemployment, but there's also that nice research to show that it goes to zero when lots of people around us are unemployed. So I don't know how, how you would feel about that assumption that the future, the future impacts and life satisfaction of COVID are zero because people will bounce back as soon as our world gets back to normal. Yeah, it's a very good question. And again, the, the sort of vexing moral problem of adaptation isn't one that's resolvable in a simple answer to a question. Um, it, it, you you, it you feel like a politician, Paul. No, it requires... <laughs> <a divide. laughs> it's too complicated. It's like an academic, because I think that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the right... That is the right answer. I mean, look, two and a half thousand years of ethical discourse haven't resolved it, right? So I think it's important that we add that context to the answer that I'm about to give, which will be much more direct, by the way, than most academics working in this area would ever give you about what they think. If, they, if they're now to the mask, what they think the policy recommendations should be, I'm much clearer in being able to tell you what I think they should be based upon an account of welfare that I think we should be using. So I would, so the account of welfare that I would be more directly using is people's experiences of their lives and of their, and of their well-being. I think life satisfaction measures can sometimes provide a good proxy for that, but they're not that. They're not how I'm feeling, pleasure and purpose in everyday life, you know, the subtitle of happiness by design. That's that's what I think is is the essence of welfare, you know, things that make us feel good and bad and how long they make us feel good and bad for, captured by pleasure and purpose. That's that's what I would be using. And it's and, and I would say that the role of role of policymakers, really hard to argue with this actually, in fact, is to reduce the suffering of those for whom the suffering matters the most in policy terms right so that would that would nearly always be improving the welfare reducing the suffering of the worst off and that's that's my that's a very very clear ethical position that i adopt it's and, and i can see the nuances and the problems with it two and a half thousand years of ethical discourse and so on if you push me into a corner the direct experiences of those directly experiencing suffering the most would be where my policy priorities are I get adaptation processes. I get all of these other concerns. But you show me real people really suffering. And they're the people whose welfare I care most about. And I take a lifetime perspective about that, by the way. It's not just at any one moment in time. It's not just any snapshot. It's over their entire lifetime. The lifetime matters. And mm -hmm. so there are things that we could do to people. You could do lots of things to people. You know, Victor, Fra Victor Frankl's amazing book, Man's Search for Meaning being put in concentration camps. I mean, you can do bad, you know, you can do, we can do bad things to people and people find ways of adapting. Coping is part of the human condition. Um, but there are things that, you know, that it's, it's harder to find adaptation processes. And that's something that you have to, you know, work hard and search hard for to find adaptation processes. And there are some things that we, that many large numbers of people don't get used to. You know, I do think that the 20,000 kids or so that have gone missing from schools completely during the course of the last 15 months, they probably won't adapt to that. Um, I think we're going to see them coming in through the public services in bad ways over the rest of their long or short lives, shorter lives, probably. So I do think there are things, you know, that we, we know have some significant and long lasting effects on I, life. That, that, I think that framing is important because you switch between the kind of maximizing welfare to almost minimizing suffering. And I think the identifying who's suffering is what the health system does as well, right? So if we kind of think of these thresholds, um, and, and I guess that's kind of one argument about using mental health instead of life satisfaction. But it was a great answer. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very um, much. Thank you.
I have another, um, I, I, this feels like a question for me, but I'm going to let you, let you answer it. This is from Louis. So how much of modern diversity policies in large companies is what we could describe as virtue signaling, for example, ethnicity quotas, and how much of it is what we call true diversity, where actual diversity of thought and skills is valued? Do you want to answer it then? I mean, I think, you know, what I would say to Louis is that most of the interventions in firms haven't shown progress in the last 10 years. So there's a small bit of evidence base kind of here and there. But if we take all of the initiatives that have been done, we've seen, you know, plateaus on gender, plateaus on race, the gender pay gap starting to reverse in some companies. Um, so that might lend you to kind of call it virtue signaling. It could be people thinking they're doing the right thing. So it's not virtue signaling. They're spending money. They're putting in time. But for me, the missing piece is the evaluation in, in what I think behavioral science does well. And when you choose something, just because you feel it's a good idea, why not actually evaluate and see if it works? So if I was sympathetic, I might give it the badge of virtue signaling. But I think the spirit of Louis' thoughts is really important that we're not actually we're, we're not making good progress. Yeah, it's a good answer. So I would say I don't like we could sort of jump to labels of narratives quite quickly, you know, virtue virtue signaling being one it's not to be disingenuous to the question at all is that we can do that that's part of the natural condition of our search for simplicity um, I do wonder on diversity whether I, like a sort of an, an idea that we, we we sort of allow I mean as people as individuals and maybe as uh, and as organizations too um, a number of degrees of diversity but not too many right it's like you don't want so so you could be a woman but you can't be a woman that disagrees with me yeah. Um, right <laughs> maybe you could be a man that disagrees with I'm me. in trouble <laughs> <laughs> right so so I think I think that's actually if we start having more of a complete picture of where of just sort of what the boundaries of where we feel comfortable with diversity then maybe we'll understand more about that lack of diversity not just on characteristic but on opinion and perspective as well I mean I think it goes back also to the start of the conversation where the idea as human beings we want to be agreed with and we don't actually see that our, our ideas getting a good kicking might actually be the best way to advance those ideas. So there's all this toll on psychological safety and how yeah. you can make that space feel okay. But ultimately, I think we need leaders who are willing to actually be questioned, which is, you know, which is, which is, is, is harder than it's um, harder than it sounds. I just want to say just quickly on the diversity, and it just reminds me of the duck rabbit problem is that remember that it's, that, that it's an animal, whichever way you see it. So there are there are some important similarities. We always we often get reminded of differences uh, that exist across people. But it's really also and it's also really important when you're framing the context. I actually remember that there's a lot of similarities between us, too. I think it's really so it's, um, I wrote this paper with Steve Pishke that talks about the preferences um, for job content um, by gender. Mm. Um, and a lot of the preference literature really emphasizes the differences between men and women. But actually, if you interpret it very carefully, it's just that the intensity of the preference differs, which is so they go in the same direction. Men and women like the same things, but there's differences in intensity. Um, and, and there is something about humans that really want to jump to pointing out differences between people rather than similarities in, in, in the same way as Doc Rabbit. We do that with stories. It's a storytelling approach to different. Like we look at people yeah. use it a lot for intergenerational differences, millennials and Gen X and Gen Z. We like creating stories of difference and there will be differences there will be some particularly in response to the technological changes but actually you know there isn't that much difference really we, you know, we're kind of broadly similar to our parents or broadly similar to their parents 
No, I agree. I agree. So what, what next for you, Paul? So what's the most innovative piece of research oh. you are working on, on right now that will come out in the next year, two years, three years, whatever, whatever the horizon is? I don't know. We discussed this a little bit when we did your book talk. I mean, it's this, you, you, that's the sort of question for you because you have all these strategies and these plans and you take these 90 minutes a week or whatever it is to, to plan and strategize your life um, and your work. I, I don't, um, I'm, oh, oh, you've frozen on me. Are you still there? Oh yeah. No, you are still there. Good. I'm still here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't, so I can't, I can never really answer that question. I have no idea. It just takes me in directions that I find interesting. Um, I do if people, if people are listening, I don't know if it's me or Paul is frozen. Me? You're back now. Okay, no, I said that was more a question for you um, as someone who likes their 90 minutes a week strategizing. Um, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm just bouncing around uh, trying to stay out of misery and trying to get into trouble. No, trying to do things that are political and purposeful. But I think the, I think the polarization issue is one I'm going to pursue. I, I've done, I really enjoyed the first season of the podcast. We're going to make another five episodes uh, of it across different issues. Um, and I'm maybe doing that the other way around. Normally people write a book and then they do a podcast. I'm going to do a podcast and then write a book. So I think I'll, I'll, I'll discuss. I just, at a personal level, it's really interesting having two children of, of, of a similar age. Our daughter's 13, our son's nearly 12. And anyone who's got children, I, I apologize for those that are, of, that are wise enough to not have any uh, or, or haven't yet had children. But um, anyone who's got more than one child will know how different they are. Um, and, and I'm fascinated by the lenses through which they look at the world. They are just fundamentally different eyes that they see the world with. One will see duck, the other one will see rabbit. Um, and so I'm really interested in, even though we know that about ourselves and other people, how difficult we then find it <laughs> to accept that people could see the world differently and to actually encourage that and to say that well-evolved societies will have a distribution of different perspectives. We would never have survived if everyone was ultra-cautious and everyone was taking risks all the time. You need some distribution. And that, that's, that's what I'm finding really interesting to take forward, I think. Do you see a role then for personalization of policies as we move as we move forward? Well, then, so I guess this is the problem, isn't it, for policymaking, is that we, we polarize in a sense because there's usually a policy lever that's pulled or it's not. But what can move us out of this is personalization. Yes, I think so. I think that it, it raises the question that we've been discussing implicitly and explicitly throughout is personalization of what? Yeah. You know, what characteristics are important to personalize? on the basis of, um, you know, and some of the sort of personality or attachment styles or whatever will be, will be important attributes of personalization, which may add, may matter in some environments much more than gender or race or class even might. So your, your last word, Paul, we're running out of time. Do you want yeah. to give three things that you would like to see for the future of behavioral science? I don't know. I was going to wonder, I wonder whether you, I wonder whether, whether you might like to do that based on what you've heard me say or what we've discussed. Um, I think we, we absolutely agree on, on diversity in decision-making um, and the idea that you should have these different perspectives around the table. I would like to see a new, new type of leader of organizations who hire different people to themselves and are, and are courageous in that, actually. And I think that will help us with innovation um, and it would also help us assess risk, risk better, the type of risks that you're interested in, which is you know, uh, uh, what, what policymakers should have been considering during the COVID-19 pandemic and also financial risks. I really like the idea of big data. So I've been listening to the, the points that you've actually made on ethics of accessing accessing data, of which I have access to lots at the moment. Um, I'm looking forward to running interventions where we look at these kind of long run, um, long run horizons in the future. 
um, and also measuring things that are actually quite difficult. One, one thing that I've always admired about your work is actually looking at the ripples in the ponds, even though I did kind of quiz you on it in this, in this talk. And I think looking at multiple outcomes, actually, and the ones that you don't think will be affected is, is, is quite interesting to me. Um, but for people who are listening who haven't done a degree in behavioral science, the starting point could be coming to the LFE to study behavioral science. But I think you should have the last word, Paul. So if there's anything that you want to say to for the next second in behavioral science, we'd love to hear it. Well, I think the criteria for the last word should be, is it any better than the words that came before? Or does it build on or develop the words that came before it? And I'm not sure on this occasion I have words that would satisfy those criteria. So um, I just want to thank you and everybody else for listening during this hour. Yeah. I mean, Paul and I both talk a lot about spending time in, in a good way. So we, we do appreciate you being here for the hour with us. And hopefully there'll be a part three at some point in the future. Part three. You don't get me to make a public commitment to that now. They say this is what you should do, Paul, right? This is actually You've got all the tricks. Thank you, Grace. Thank you so much. And really, genuinely, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for being generous with your thoughts. See you soon.